Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sisters is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at cohortsisters.com. Welcome back to the Cohort Sisters podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Lauren Mims, an assistant professor of educational psychology at Ball State University in Indiana. Dr. Mims received her doctorate in educational psychology from the University of Virginia, and her research promotes the well-being and development of Black students, with a particular focus on Black girls. Dr. Mims took some time off during her doctoral degree to work in the White House, serving as the Assistant Director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans during the Obama administration. She shares why she became interested in studying the strength and magic of Black youth, how her time in the White House shaped and continues to shape her work, and how she connects her research with both policy and practice. Let's get into our conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Lauren Mims, for joining us on the Cohort Sisters podcast. We have been following each other on social for quite some time now, so I know a little bit about who you are and the amazing work that you do, the amazing research that you contribute to the world and to Black girlhood. So I'm excited to share your story and your journey with everyone else. So can you just start us off by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you like to do in your spare time. Also tell the people, you got to tell the people what your sweatshirt says, because it's just so good. So good. (laughs) Hello. So excited to talk to you. As you said, since 2017, I've been kind of like watching your journey. So it's very cool to actually speak to each other. That's not going back and forth on Instagram. I am currently an assistant professor of educational psychology um, in the developmental core. So I focus on thriving Black children and Black children's joy. So I look at Black girl magic and Black joy joy and just like all the great things and the way that families persist and flipping the narrative around, not just to say kind of a strength space, but almost that brilliance is axiomatic or that brilliance is inherent to who we are, like it's in our DNA. And so we really need to think about how systems can meet us on the moon, which was what my dissertation was, which was talking about, we need to really listen to Black girls and their needs, what are their challenges that they experience, as well as what supports them and then go from there. So meet them. They're out here charting constellations. And as a friend Aaron says, Black Girls Bend Theory, Black Girls Bend Theory. Yet we often try to apply theory onto them to explain their behavior, often in deficit-based ways. And so instead moving and kind of meeting them on the moon and thinking like you are, you have all in your mind, these brilliant constellations. And so how do we map the future based on the blueprint that you have created? And so I've done that of looking at Black girls, and then I'm switching to look at Black families. And so specifically looking at Black moms and how Black moms are just 
incredible. And they stand in the gap for their, for their children. And so thinking about what does thriving look like and what is that process and doing it as a, as a science. That is what I am currently working on and what I have kind of started my journey working on and was, felt like I was pushed out a bit, really wanted me to focus on what are you know the deficit-based ways that Black families aren't doing well. They felt like joy was kind of the stuff of fluff. Like, oh, I, joy, that's so cute. Like, oh, like you could study joy. And I'm like, oh, like joy is a form of resistance. It's intentional. It is something that is incredibly powerful. And it is a science. It's one of the most unexplored emotions. It's something we haven't looked at among Black families. And so it's been really cool. Oh, and what do I do? I think you asked in my, in my free time. I am wearing a Audrey Lord University sweatshirt. And I am a collector of sweatshirts and sneakers. (laughs) So I'd say my free time, I look at sneakers and sweatshirts. I am a fan as well as behind me, there are books. I love reading, kind of reading books that challenge my thinking is my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Your entire setup is so, it's like so Zoom ready. It's so perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And the books that you have on display are absolutely beautiful. Plus the artwork. So I I'm a little surprised to hear that you're a sneaker person. I don't, I like didn't know that. I don't know how I missed that, but I knew that you had a thing for sweatshirts. I feel like I have had gotten that off the social, but maybe you don't post enough sneakers because I, I had no idea. I've been thinking about this a lot and I typically wear heels because when I am teaching, I... I'm like blazer gang all day. I actually, I probably collect blazers too. Maybe yeah. we should move from this conversation. Maybe I just collect everything. I do have like 60 blazers. I can't believe I wow. said that on a podcast, but they're... That's goals right there for me, at least. I love, cause I love a good blazer. I'm, I'm yeah, here for the right? blazer. It just, you can wear a blazer, but you know, blazer and a sweatshirt if you really want. Like it's, I'm out here in the Midwest over here in Indiana. It's <laughs> cold. So sometimes you got to layer the blazer with the, you know, but sneakers. I actually think that there is, this is like a sneaker. I just got Yara Shahidi's new Adidas. And it's so cool because she talks about, It's a blend between her black girlhood and being Iranian and putting, blending those two together, which is, I was like, how a black girl identity sneaker? Like, I need that. (laughs) (laughs) And then Beyonce, I got a couple of Beyonce sneakers, same thing, like talking. So it's neat when the people, like you see people kind of walking in their passion or like that flow, like the zone of create. I just imagine I was like, I can't not get these sneakers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like, how can I not get Yara's identity development sneakers when I talk all about like, how do you walk, literally help black girls walk into their passions and kind of acknowledge that their social position is not something that is seen as putting them at risk for negative yeah. outcome, which is the way that we always think, oh, well, you know, being a black girl, she's got to face a double jeopardy, which I think is important to acknowledge the systems and structures. But also, if we only talk about the double jeopardy, then that's when I get my faculty members send to me, oh, it is so sweet. It's so great that you're doing that work to study Black families. It's so great. Like it is, it is a charitable contribution. I'm like, actually, no one says that for other research subjects. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. so great that you are studying E. coli. It's so <laughs> <laughs> So I, I 
think that it comes from the narrative. So I think when we kind of continue to advance the narrative and actually kind of really have holistic, thriving perspectives of families, then I think it matters. I think it Mm -hmm. matters. Yeah. Awesome. I love how the fashion, essentially the sweatshirts, the blazers, the sneakers are all an extension of your work. I absolutely love that. (laughs) So you talked about being in the Midwest. Are you from the Midwest? How'd you end up in the Midwest? Great question. I have learned that the academic journey is very unpredictable. And I am someone who firmly abides by the five-year plan. I've had a plan for you know the next five years of my life and academia and kind of God has laughed every time. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one. It's okay. <laughs> so I am here, but we talk a lot about the difference. What's the difference between an R1 and what's the difference between an R2 and a small liberal arts college? But I For me, I applied to all of them. I did not have a location. I wasn't constrained by location. At my last year of my PhD, I just applied broadly where I felt like it was a good fit. But what I learned along the way was Oprah, I think she says kind of like, were you silent or were you silenced? And I think that it is this idea of were you celebrated or were you tolerated? I am at Ball State University because the first time I got on the phone for an interview, my, me and my work was celebrated. When I came for a job interview, the faculty members took time to meet with me for dinner the first night that I arrived because they realized I was going to be there around dinner time by myself. And so they just added an additional time for me to get to know them. I had a full day with them and every I met with almost every single faculty member. Students took time out during their finals week to come and listen to my presentation. And they were so excited and student and it, that I was just felt like it was a celebration of me and my work and it wasn't it wasn't like my I was on trial my ideas or were being challenged. And that was so different than some of the other universities that I interviewed at. They would say, well, what do you say about or to play devil's advocate? And I thought to myself, do I want to sit in an office next to the devil's advocate? What are the implications of that? And so for me, my five-year plan, where I felt like the universities I would go to are very different than where I am. And so I am now here in Indiana. And the first time that I came to Indiana was when I came to this interview Got a rental car, jumped in the rental car and drove from the airport. It's about an hour. And I saw a bunch of cornfields and I said, <laughs> what is this? I am originally from Northern Virginia, which is very diverse. And there is just a lot happening. I did a small stint with the White House, a lot happening. And then kind of found myself here with a you know, the navigator driving down this, you know, this road for an hour looking at kind of cornfields and <laughs> and oh, solar gosh. panels and wondering. <laughs> and you you really, I probably for about 45 minutes, you just drive and that's kind of the scene. There are the cows and you, I just thought to myself, what am I doing? <laughs> then you pop up and there's this beautiful campus and mm-hmm. it's beautiful, but it's just very funny because I didn't, I never, I didn't plan to end up in the Midwest. I don't have family here, but 
Uh, the celebration of Black scholars and Black scholarship is, I would make that choice again. Mm-hmm. I'd make that choice again to be able to walk into a building or to submit my promotion and tenure materials and know that when I talk about the work and the value of the work that somebody is reading that and nodding their head rather than challenging and saying kind of, why did you choose the Journal of Black Psychology and not choose child development? And some of it is like, I can do both, right? Like Mm -hmm, I -hmm. I can submit to child development and the Journal of Black Psychology, but what I need you to do is I need you to see value in both. And so that to me was really important. And I think that I have been places where that's not the case. And so it makes it even more valuable. It is something that I am glad that I experienced in my first faculty position because it frees up a lot of emotional energy trying to convince other you know, colleagues that my work is just as important as some of the work that they're doing. Like bar none, they, we don't have any conversations about that. They will come and say, you know, how are you doing? I'm working on this project. And I was just wondering if we could sit down and have a conversation about it so I can make sure that there are some African-American students in my sample. And I want to make sure not to collapse race, but also to think about how this may be important to further investigate because I don't have enough to disaggregate the data. But I want to say that we really need to have these considerations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is such a blessing. And it's really awesome that you recognize that you know, in the interview process and that you chose a place that you would be able to, as you said, like not have to exert additional emotional energy on top of the transition to a faculty position anyway. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I feel like we've skipped to the end of your journey. <laughs> Sorry. Also, no, 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 no need to apologize. Also, I am about to have that same exact experience of driving through the Midwest through cornfields in Indiana being like, what have I done? So totally feel you on the, (laughs) I had no idea this would be my life. Never thought that I would ever, 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 ever go to the Midwest and go live there and go move there and, and go teach there. But as you said, God be laughing. He laughs That's at it. our plans. So. Well, hey, neighbor, I would say invest in a really good coat, game changer. Yeah. I'll send you my coat that I got. Uh, highly recommend it. It's kind of like walking in a sleeping bag. You make a way. <laughs> I'll definitely be talking to you more after this interview about (laughs) Indiana survival tips. But let's go a little bit back. How did you get interested in studying Black girlhood? How did you get interested in even psychology? Was that something that you were, you know, as a child, you always were really passionate about and interested in? And then along the same lines, when did you decide that you wanted to pursue doctoral studies? When I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher during the day and a doctor at night. (laughs) (laughs) so wow the ambition though (laughs) right right and I actually think that like if we're going to be developmentally appropriate because remember I'm a developmental psychologist I was saying I want to be a professor right like a teacher during the day doctor at night and now people call me Dr. Mims and I work Mm -hmm. all day so and all night so here we are (laughs) you did it I I did it. I did it. We did it, Joe. I did not. But I started in undergrad, I started a pre-med, which I think is a common narrative among those who pursue psychology. But for me, I took child development and child, I think it was called child psychology as an elective. And I was taking chemistry and it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 
a Tuesday lab and Thursday recitation. And it was every single day. And I felt like I wanted to cry every time I walked. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but when I went into my child psychology class, I was fascinated by the topic and thinking about how we can support children's learning and development across the, like thinking about I was really interested in really, really, really little kids and adolescents. So those two kind of critical points of development. But when I was in that class, I, I kept waiting to hear about Black child development and I didn't. And when I did was, I believe it's, you know, a 16 week semester, week 13, there was culture week and culture week was like, oh, in Africa, they do this. African-Americans may do this. In China, they do this. And that's how children develop differently. Okay, so next week, we're going to talk about, and the fact that we didn't talk about normative Black child development, I was very frustrated. I thought about what the othering that existed in child development classes. And at the same time, I ended up being an English psychology double major, but I wanted to be pre-med majoring in English. And so I was also taking English classes and I got to take classes like Black Women Writers. And so I'm seeing intentionally enrolling in classes that are centering the perspectives of Black folks. But then in my psychology classes, that same attention and thought is not being given. And so I felt like I wanted to go into psychology to focus on Black girlhood because Black girlhood studies and psychology at the time, there was very little research that had been done. I felt like we just had to take the same care and attention as we did to study neuroscience, to really think about charting these kind of looking at what are these kind of black girl constellations? What are the things that are the protective factors? What are barriers? We just kind of, we talk about how we want to close achievement gaps, but we're not really looking what are, from the students' perspectives, what are the things that are supporting or hindering their learning and development? So at that time, I decided pre-med wasn't bringing me joy. The coursework was not bringing me joy. And I thought I wanted to go into pediatrics. And so I thought, well, why do you want to go into pediatrics? It's because you really want to support Black children. And I was like, well, you can go and study Black girlhood. And so I have always been at the nexus of research and policy and practice. And so at the same time, I had been volunteering in Black girl programming. And I started to see the same educational trajectories and developmental and psychological outcomes among the girls. And I was incredibly frustrated because I was seeing all of the ways that they were being pushed out of educational context, but then thriving in the programs that we were developing for them. And so thinking about why are these spaces counter spaces, like counter spaces when they should actually be every, I, I kind of what keeps me up at night is envisioning that a Black girl gets to wake up in the morning so excited to go to school, to see her friends, to see her teachers, to learn about the topics. And that school is a place, like a joyful place, and that she has all the resources, the skills, and the tools needed to be able to persist, but also to thrive and to experience the you know happiness and the joys of childhood and to be a Black girl. And that is that kind of that's the goal. So I ended up going to pursue a master's in child development because I was thinking at the time I wasn't too sure whether I wanted to go the academic kind of professor route 
probably because I didn't see a lot of Black women professors. I felt like sometimes the work that they did was so distant from the people. Like they were doing work that I felt like the broader in- implications, they were like, oh, we have to write about like this may matter for this. And I really was like, I don't want to do it if it doesn't apply to the lived, the like the lives and livelihoods of my people. And so I was thinking about clinical psychology so that, you know, do I want to go? And I applied, I was at a critical juncture in my master's program. And so I did my master's with thesis and I went to go and talk about getting a internship. I wanted to do both the thesis and an internship. You're supposed to only do one. And I was like, I want to do both. Uh, you can see it right here. <laughs> Always doing the most. Doing the most. <laughs> like it really was like you take the thesis route or you take the internship route. And I was like, well, I also would like to, here's this <laughs> thesis. I'm going to develop a program for black girls and do it in a local school. But at the same time, I'd really like internship experience under people who are doing really great work. My advisor was really great. And she was like, okay, let's try and see if we can make a way for that. But when I went to go talk to the supervisor, I will never forget that meeting because I talked about all of these very similarly to how I've been talking about these amazing ideas of what the world could look like, a world where Black youth, all Black youth thrived. And I said, well, I want to go into, I'd like to work in a hospital and just really think about how hospitals can better serve Black folks, particularly Black children. What does that look like? And he said, that's really fascinating. Your work is really interesting. But, well, it's a bit like me and my desire to climb Mount Everest. Virtually impossible. And he said, but do you know what I have for you? Do you know what I have for you? You can apply. I have a great friend over there at the local precinct who focuses on police standing in the gap for parents who are unable to. It's like a a mentoring program between police and troubled youth. And I think your population would be there. So if you would like to intern there, just let me know. But wouldn't grant the internship for me where I was really thinking about how do we support those who need the most support, you know, who are in hospitals, who are kind of seeking care, thinking about disparities in care. We can talk like you, this is like, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you know, I, <laughs> like yeah. if you know, you know, you know. And that was, I thought about kind of what it would be to be a psychologist in a hospital based setting and really listen and affirm this kind of racial trauma that Black youth experience that I think often gets dismissed. And the response really was like, your, your population will not be there. And so at that point in time, I actually thought about this idea that Martin Luther King said that education is the great equalizer. And the idea where I thought, well, he's wrong, but also children have to go to school and school is a critical context for development. And so that's where I ended up pursuing a PhD in educational psychology, applied developmental science. So thinking about schools as spaces where Black children thrive, particularly Black girls, and goes back to that idea of meeting Black girls on the moon. And so that is the kind of, again, talking about the five-year plan and the path and all of these kind of critical moments have happened throughout the kind of moments in my academic trajectory. But that that was a big one. And then I ended up 
doing my master's thesis the next year in high school and saw students, I was able to work with 10 Black girls on a program, which was just, it was really powerful. But I'll never forget, there was a window and Black girls would look in the window of the program that I was leading. But when we do evidence-based programming, you have to have pre and post. So you Mm -hmm. can't just say like, hey, come on in. You want to come in week six? It's like, no, because like, what does that mean? There's like, and so (laughs) I realized that there are always going to be people in the window. And so thinking about how do we then kind of get rid of the window altogether. And then that's the space that everybody can walk in or that they're so used to that it doesn't have to be developing programs in schools, but that schools, we could just kind of reimagine schools. And so that's where where I am now is like reimagining school. And then COVID really changed that because it was thinking about, we have a great opportunity where there's a great woke kindergarten led by Key. She talks, she, I saw a keynote and they said, what learning happens when school buildings are closed? When they said that, I really realized that I often, I also have fallen into the trap that like school is the place where learning occurs, but that's not true. (laughs) The parents are teaching their children all the time. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's a both and. So I've looked both Mm -hmm. that kind of, what's great is in in faculty life, which is different from dissertating life. Dissertating Mm -hmm. life is you focus on your dissertation. Like you kind of have to really, it's your, your big project. And so Black Girlhood Studies was my big project. What's really neat is I can now, I have a study called kind of locating the everyday magic that looks at the magic in kind of these positive, really great experiences that are happening in the lives of Black girls. And also have Joy in the Box, which is a parenting intervention where we are kind of delivering Black history boxes and saying, have the you can have these really great conversations with your children and giving a couple activities. So for example, we're doing this really neat one for a box partnering with Because of Them We Can. So they get these huge, big boxes. They're so cool. They come to their house. I'm working with another developmental psychologist, Erica Bachnick at Wayne State. And what we've done is we've created parent sheets so that they can have these really great high quality experiences together. So one of them is the Harlem Renaissance. So they're going to get a Harlem Renaissance box and it talks about what is the Harlem Renaissance and they have little kind of like canvases. And it basically says that, you know, the people in the Harlem Renaissance were brilliant and so are you and talks about how Toni Morrison said that this is the time this, you know, when things are difficult, this is the time when we create art. And we do these kind of like Zoom video visits. <laughs> and so we sit, they put us on their table and then <laughs> and we just kind of watch the great things that are happening among families. So that kind of listening and learning. And so they're going to work together as a family to create art as it relates to the pandemic. So whether that is through a conversation, poetry, there's clay that's included, there's art, but these are children that are newborns all the way up to high schoolers, anybody who kind of Black families could participate. So I'm excited to see the ways that they collaborate to make meaning of this time. And then thinking about how 
the return to school is we have an opportunity. I don't know how much some schools are going to take it, but we have an opportunity (laughs) (laughs) to reimagine education. We had the opportunity, but I think it still persists. What does it look like when students are sitting in classrooms in the fall? Are we going to go back to a model where we're silencing and erasing the perspectives, the narratives, the lived experiences of Black children? Or are we actually going to reimagine Hopefully some of this work in seeing the ways that Black parents are, the strategies that they're employing to teach their children, I think we can learn from them rather than thinking about how do we teach parents to be teachers? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Parents are already teachers. We should be learning more from the, the ways that they are imparting this critical knowledge to their children. That is so cool. That study, I, I know it's a study, but I'm like, I feel like I want the box to start playing with. So I'm like, can I just get the box though? Um, but that is sounds like such, okay. You can just get the box. So we will I will drop the link on how to get the box <laughs> in the show notes because that is such a cool idea. A quick parenting segue. So one of the things is we were thinking about how we wanted to parent our child. We, at one point, we're going to be like a no screen family that no longer happened. But we did want to be really intentional about the kind of toys that we gave him. And so we didn't have the time to like fully invest in doing the whole like Montessori on our own, but like went and got a subscription box of like research backed, like Montessori kids toys. And now that you talk about, you know, like black play box, that's how I'm interpreting it. I think that that would be such an awesome addition to how my son plays and learns and how we teach him black history and black culture. So from a, just a very personal perspective, I definitely want to go investigate the box and get it for ourselves. Also love that you're partnering with Because of Them We Can. They're one of my favorite organizations, such amazing work, just such, such, such amazing work. Okay. So we've talked a lot about your research, you know, why you got interested into developmental psychology, into child development, into like working at school specifically instead of the hospital and definitely like not the prison. I don't know what he was talking about, but I have kind of two more lines of questioning. One is you said earlier that you really believe in the intersection of research, policy, and practice. And I know that you've done some policy work. So can you talk to us a little bit about the time that you spent in the Obama administration, what you did there, how you even ended up there, and how that kind of intersected with your graduate education? Again, remembering the winding path of the five-year plan. So <laughs> goes back, let's rewind to 2014. So 2014, I started at the University of Virginia in my doc program and found myself a little bit like I felt when I started the pre-med track with child development. And the conversations that my advisor was incredible. And so I went to the University of Virginia for my advisor because she really emphasized, uh, we were both inspired by Beverly Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together? That was kind of our first, during the interview, we just really talked about how much we loved it. (laughs) And she then received a grant to do a five-year study looking at the effects of diverse schools on students and not kind of are, you know, are schools diverse or, and asking this kind of question, but thinking about students in diverse schools, what are the experiences of students in diverse schools as we are moving to 
in some locations, like we have increased segregation, but then we have some schools that are becoming more diverse. But what are kind of what are the benefits and challenges associated with that from the youth perspective? And so I was really excited to think about for Black girls, what is their experience like at this point being one of 10 students? And so we had a really great match. And she really, uh, I remember one of our first meetings, she said to me, she said, Lauren, this is your PhD and I'm here to support you. And that was, it's so powerful. It's very small, but I often, I say that to my students as well, because I think some people would say, you know, you're going to become a little protege. And and she never was like, I want you to be a mini me. That wasn't the way it worked. She really said, I want to support you on your endeavors. And so it was almost kind of like Bell Hooks talks about home places and this place where kind of Black women can be a home place or it can be a space, a, a literal space, but also kind of where you feel home and often in the company of other Black women. And so I felt like it was a home place for me. Every We met every single week, my entire program. And I, I felt like whenever we met, I smiled and she listened to my big ideas and visions and then would say, okay, this is how we could do it. And it was great. And that was where I was dreaming. But outside of it, I was often kind of confronted with these dream killers, honestly. I took my first class in research, kind of research methods, and you have to create a proposal. And I remember I just, they were like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why are you studying this? But even worse, it was like, B minus. And I kept, and the grade matters because you have to get a certain grade in the class. And so I was really trying to figure out how to convince them that this work mattered. So I found myself on social media a lot. (laughs) I found myself uh, back in the day on Tumblr or on Twitter, but mostly Twitter because the great conversations were happening on Twitter about this. And so the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African-Americans was signed by and established by President Obama to focus on educational excellence for African-Americans, which is brilliant because I'm trying to focus on educational excellence for African-Americans and thinking about what are the challenges and narratives and how can we kind of leverage policy to change some of these systems and structures. And so they had these things called Twitter chats, these Med chats, and every month they would have a chat related to a topic. And so I would apply to the, or I would like log on and say, oh, I'm joining from the University of Virginia. You know how if you've done it like Q1, A1, <laughs> and you answer the yep. A1, hi, I'm this PhD student <laughs> and I'm so excited to be here. I did those for a long time and then they announced an internship program. And so I jumped at the idea. Being in an, a physical location, like thinking about again, home place, I was like, wow, there's a place in the administration where they focus on supporting Black students in STEM. They focus on rethinking discipline, all of these really incredible initiatives. And so I applied and I told my advisor I applied, but I said, you know, this is, is, I just applied. It's a long shot. We'll talk about it if we get there. And then I got an interview. I interviewed and I didn't hear back for a while. And so I kind of just moved on and started thinking about what I wanted to do for summer research. And then I got the call to intern. And so I ended up, they were really, she, she advocated for me to do something different than other students. So mostly we had to be paid to do kind of research. That was typically what people did over, you know, summer research with my advisor. And she said, no, I think this is a critical experience um, for Lauren. And so she advocated for me to leave over the summer for the three months to do the internship. 
on the last day of the internship, I remember um, the executive director, David Johns, I went to go say goodbye. And he said, oh, don't say goodbye to me. And I said, well, this is my last day. So I'm saying goodbye. <laughs> and he was like, no, we're not done. And I remember, I think two days later, uh, he ended up calling me and said, okay, so we, you know, I need you to continue the work. We were doing a film series where we were screening films at the White House and bringing children in to see positive and affirming films at the White House, which was so cool. But I had tried to work to get the directors and secure all of that. And so I passed that on, but he really was like, and take it back. (laughs) So I navigated that a little bit while I was a second year doc student in Charlottesville, which is about two hours from DC. So I was trying to navigate all of those. And then a, a senior staff position opened up in that office. And so I took a leave of absence and left to go serve in the Obama administration. And it was incredible. And so I took that leave of absence. And then on inauguration day, I packed up, I got to go to Air Force One and wave to the Obamas as they like got, it was so cool. (laughs) And then I went home (laughs) and packed up the, I moved to my parents' house because they're so Mm -hmm. close during Mm -hmm. that time. And moving to DC is very expensive. Yeah. (laughs) after being on a grad student salary. So I packed all my stuff from my parents' house and drove to an apartment that I was able to secure in the middle of the year, which is hard in academic land where Mm -hmm. they're usually yearly contracts. And I was sitting in the desk on Monday, (laughs) (laughs) sitting back in a desk and back (laughs) at it and resume my program. So I was granted a leave of absence, which was really nice that allowed me to do that. So I graduated later than my original cohort. And so I was kind of initially, I, and this, this seems weird now, but I had some kind of imposter syndrome, like, wow, everybody's graduating before me. Like I am so behind and people are, and, but now when I look back, I'm like, but you went to go work for the Obama administration. (laughs) I think you're okay. (laughs) But again, I just really have to, the rigidity of having planning and doing that long-term planning. And so I'm just really, for me, the biggest lesson I've learned is to kind of really, to to be stubborn about your goals and your research that you want to do, but really flexible about the the path and the methods because every that has helped me a lot in thinking about that flexibility and being open to opportunities that may be different than your cohort members just by nature of the work that you're doing. Right. That's definitely going to be a tweetable like hashtagable (laughs) line right there. That was amazing. So as we kind of wind up, is there any kind of like last piece of advice that you have for aspiring doctoral students, Black women who want to pursue a doctoral degree, but who also especially want to make sure that their work is practiced in real life, in real time, and also has policy implications? What advice would you have for them? Aside from the great gem that you just dropped. I think going back all the way to the beginning and thinking about going where you're celebrated rather than tolerated. And I think that I have been in places where I have been tolerated, but I think finding those home places is really important. And I think that there's a collaborative of folks who are doing work. If they're doing work that's similar to yours, reaching out 
Due to the pandemic, I have worked with so many young scholars at different universities. And from it can be something like, you know, just getting on the phone and talking about what it's like and listening and affirming that journey or joining them in writing. I've co-authored with graduate students and kind of junior professors like me. And so I think that it is kind of be true to like, know that your path is, it may look different, but that does not mean that it is not the right path. Even if people are telling you that, I think that throughout my life, people have not necessarily seen the vision that I have for my own life or my academic trajectory until it happens. And then after the fact, they're like, oh my gosh, exactly. So Congratulations. Oh, yeah. We knew, we knew. Right? That. <laughs> and I'm like, you didn't know, you didn't know. And actually, like, if I could pull the recording from when I was in this office, I will say, and I received the Research to Practice Integration Award from the person who told me I couldn't do what I was doing. And then recently was on a webinar presenting with that same person in the audience. And so I am not here. I am trying to remember, but this is, I want to end on this gem and I'm trying to think about who said it, but we often spend time focusing on what we are fighting against. It's equally as important to focus on what we're fighting for. So I think sometimes we say kind of the best revenge is your paper, but also kind of thinking about the best revenge is like, maybe it's not revenge at all. It's, I don't, I don't do this work to think about him. That's fine. I'm glad that I didn't accept this position thinking that he, you know, or accept that keynote thinking, oh, he's going to be there in the audience. I thought about all the folks who are in the audience who may be doing something similar to what I'm doing, who can see kind of this possibility model, but, and also know that there are ways to do what you're doing within the academy. And so I think if I can impart that wisdom in grad school, and kind of other junctures of my life, I focused a lot on those who have told me that that is wrong and thinking about kind of questioning that path. But at the same time, there was a groundswell of people who were telling me what I'm doing is so needed and I'm exactly where I am and it's right. And so if I could say anything, I would really think about focus on the home place. Like it really matters. Focus on those people who are pouring into you, find those people and continue to do what you do because it really matters. It matters. And we'll never get at any point. I will never get at any point in my life where there will not be some hater or yeah. there will be somebody <laughs> who's questioning my work. I submit things out for review and I get the same feedback anonymous about like, well, why didn't she focus on the number of black girls who are fighting like did that happen in her sample and i'm like i'm not talking about fighting i'm talking about solidarity and sisterhood why do i what i don't but <laughs> you all those will always be there but i think when we continue to do this work there are these really wonderful like i just had a revise and resubmit decision this morning that i'm very excited about that is talking about conceptualizing black joy and these ideas that black families are doing great things like the rituals that they have like sunday dinner so mapping sunday dinners and the cool rituals and things that are kind of that we do and showing actually that it is protecting and kind of giving a little buffer 
for children later on when they experience adversity. And so, and the fact that they're like, wow, like this conceptualization of black joy in pulling in from kind of more popular press is brilliant. And I'm like, wow, you get it. (laughs) (laughs) So like there are those wins. And I think I've seen look for the wins and kind of join the winning team. Right. So I'll end by saying, you know, if you're listening, you are you know, in educational psychology, or you are an aspiring developmental psychologist, or you want to go in the Academy, I'm happy to support in ways that I can, if I can't, then I think that's just kind of, I think cohort systems, like looking at the, the connections that people are already making. So if you're not already joining, then you should already have joined because black girls bend theory and you have yes. already created <laughs> space for this. But I think just personally, I can make that offer to those who are listening because it is, it is difficult. But I think that it's also possible. And so I think that ending, and that's the advice that I give is that kind of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mims, for ending us on that one great plug for for cohort sisters, but also (laughs) for offering yourself as a resource. Again, your work is so exciting. It's, it definitely is bending the magic. Is that the phrase that you use? Bending the, what are we bending again? It's locating the magic, but now I'm like, I'm like the arc of the, you know, Barack Obama says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So like bending towards the magic, I'm like, well, Mm. I'm, you may just put me as as a co-author on that one. Wait a minute. (laughs) Thank you. Taking notes. I'm like bending the magic. As you said it, all of a sudden I'm seeing like already have the paper. So I love it. I love it. the agenda item for you. You're going to get like this, like, (laughs) okay. So after you said bending the magic, I was like the arc of the universe and the moral universe can actually be addressed by lifting the magic of black children. And like, here we are. So thank you for leaving me with that gem. (laughs) I'm glad that my misremembrance of (laughs) what you said just sparked new ideas. I feel like you now have extra things to think about. Thanks again for joining us, for spending your time with us today. And really, really excited that you were able to share. Also really excited that we got to connect in this way since we haven't been able to do this. So really appreciate your time again. So Dr. Rim's contact information will be in the show notes and we thank you again for your time. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll catch you in next week's episode.